You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight. To hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. One of Rogers and Hammerstein's most popular musicals is South Pacific. And they set out soon after the end of the Second World War to adapt some of James Michener's South Pacific stories into a production that would make a clear statement against racism. Now, South Pacific is set on an island, which is a, a U.S. naval base, and the main story is about Navy nurse Nellie Forbush and a French plantation owner, Emile Debec. Nellie is a cockeyed optimist, a naive girl from Little Rock, seeing the big wide world for the first time. And on an enchanted evening, she meets a stranger and falls in love. But Emile is older than Nellie. He is a foreigner to her, and she can rationalize that. But then she finds out that Emile has children, mixed-race children, illegitimate children. And Nellie is tormented by the deeply implanted beliefs about people and their actions. And there is a parallel story about young Lieutenant Cable who arrives on the island and meets and falls in love with a Tonkinese girl, Liat. He is tormented by the knowledge that he could never bring such a young woman back home with him to the States. And so Lieutenant Cable rejects Liat, Nellie rejects Emile, and in frustration, Emile asks, why are Americans, we, we might say North Americans, why are they so prejudiced? And in his troubled state, Lieutenant Cable breaks into song, because that's what people in musicals do. And he sings, you've got to be taught carefully taught before you are six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate. The story goes on toward another enchanted evening for Nellie and Emile. What about L Lieutenant Cable? Well, if you don't know or remember the story, I won't ruin it for you any more than I already have. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. And what if you are taught in God's name? We have to admit it, every religion involves some sorting of people, assigning relative value to castes, tribes, classes, levels of devotion or enlightenment. In every system, every human system of belief and practice, people who accept the creed and the worldview get busy deciding who's in and who's out, who's worthy and who's not. 
who's normal and who is the other. And whether religious people say, well, that's just the way the world is, we can't change that, or they say that's the way God tells us to order the world, it doesn't matter. Long after the reasons for distinctions and divisions have been forgotten, systems of belief and practice can change, and long after people may claim to have been enlightened, so they've left behind the old ways, distinctions and divisions live on. Prejudice lives on. Because from generation to generation, people are carefully taught. Today we meet Peter, apostle of Jesus the Messiah. He's out in the world beyond Jerusalem. He's been driven by the Holy Spirit to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Dead, risen, and reigning. Peter lived with Jesus for three years, day and night, traveled with Jesus, saw him do, heard him say astonishing things. Peter walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, slept at his side, smelled his sweat, saw his tears. And Peter was, was there when they came to take Jesus away to kill him. And Peter met Jesus risen from death, ate with him, walked and talked some more. And all along the way, Peter saw how Jesus showed no partiality. Male and female, Hebrew and Samaritan, Jew and Gentile, wounded and whole, all the same, all equally worthy. So now here's Peter in our reading from Acts chapter 10. All eyes are upon him, all ears are ready to hear him, and he begins his sermon. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. I truly understand. Now, I get it. Despite all he saw and heard when he was with Jesus, Peter was shaped by 42 generations of careful teaching of the laws of God and Moses, of the traditions, of the elders. He has seen how his elders behaved He's learned the stories of the ancestors and has inherited their understanding of the way God orders the world. This is Peter's Damascus Road moment. Just as dramatic as Saul's and every bit as significant. And this is how that moment first dawns for Peter just a couple of days before. He's resting at, at the home of Simon the Tanner, one of his own people, Here's what it says in an earlier part of Acts chapter 10. Peter goes up on the roof to pray. He becomes hungry and wants some food. And while it's being prepared, he falls into a trance. He sees the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. And in it are all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And then he hears a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice says to him again, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, 
you must not call profane. And a third time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And then the sheet thing disappears back up into heaven. And while Peter is trying to figure out what has happened to him, is it because I was hungry and my blood sugar is low? Is it because I'm here like a fool on a roof in the midday sun? What's going on? Meanwhile, downstairs, some men arrive, messengers from a Roman centurion, Cornelius. Cornelius sent them to find Peter. In fact, God's angel told Cornelius where Peter would be. And God's Spirit tells Peter to get up and go with them, and he does. I assume he has lunch and gets a good night's sleep. Now Cornelius, the centurion, the Roman, the foreigner, the enemy of the people, actually loves his Hebrew neighbors, we're told. But he's still far from being one of them. And when Peter finally gets to Cornelius' house, he says, you know it's unlawful for someone like me to visit someone like you. But, Peter says, God has shown me I shouldn't call anyone unclean outside God's reach or beyond my touch. And Cornelius tells him that he has also heard from Israel's God. God's angel told Cornelius his prayers are answered and Peter is the answer. Peter's Damascus Road moment blazes with light, just like Saul's. But unlike Saul, Peter's eyes are wide open. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears God recognizes, anyone who recognizes God is God and does right is acceptable to God. Peter's sermon is brief, just the important stuff. He's had lots of practice telling the story. But before Peter finishes, the Holy Spirit loses patience and does the same thing she did in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Peter's fellow Hebrew disciples are also shocked, astonished, that the Holy Spirit is so obviously with, around, and within these foreigners, and in Cornelius' house, So Peter shouts, Would anyone dare hold back the water of baptism? Let it flow. Wonderful story. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the elders of the church get wind of what Peter has done and of what Saul, who now says, Call me Paul because I'm about to go out into the Gentile world, so... Peter and Paul both, what what has happened through them? And they both insist that God has authorized ministry to the Gentiles and done it all at once. Now the elders know because Jesus told them to preach the good news, starting at home and then in places close to home and then all over the world. And so the elders have considered carefully how to start maybe a test project, a task force. Send a few out and see what happens. And Peter is one of those few authorized to go out and make a few tentative steps into the world. 
So has Peter gone too far? Or is this really something from God? One commentator puts the elders' dilemma this way. If we let the others in, will the church be Jewish enough? Now, I've heard it put this way. We let all those foreigners in, and the Presbyterian Church in Canada isn't Scottish anymore. And I remember my mother's anxiety when my sisters became old enough to date. She was afraid one of them would fall in love with a Catholic boy. Now, I was a precocious kid. I, I, I spoke out of turn a lot. And so I reminded her that she had married a Catholic. When I regained consciousness, <laughs> when I was a little older, I understood why she felt as she did and found out that my father's membership in the Presbyterian Church had been kept a secret from the rest of the family. Now, as it turned out, my sisters both fell in love with Presbyterian men whose parents were even more concerned that these DeWolf girls might be Catholics. My mother never said a word about who I might marry, but I'm sure both Janet's Presbyterian parents and mine heaved sighs of relief when they found out that the two of us had found each other. So the most my mother ever said to me was, it just makes, a thing, makes things a lot easier if you're both the same. Same kind of people. Same religion. Same denomination. Same ethnic origin. Same fill-in-the-blank. But if we take that belief into the, the, the complicated, variegated, even more multi- and intercultural world, valuing sameness, we discover right away it's far from easy, no matter how hard we try, to protect our prejudices. The assumptions we absorb from our parents and all the adults around us, and an and, and inherited kind of collective consciousness that's part of our heritage. These assumptions get buried deep, deep within us. And when we grow up, we, we like to say we know better. And we may go through our lives without ever speaking even one overtly racist word. But at some point, under stress, maybe in a moment when we see someone who's different from us, an other, favored, chosen, instead of us, all of the education and sensitivity and acceptance we've had, all the good gospel preaching we've heard, feelings, memories, words, surface, doesn't matter how much new and good stuff Peter has absorbed from Jesus, he is still a man of his time and place and heritage. And God has to bring Peter face to face with the reality of the world as God intends it to be. Then Peter can say, now I understand. God shows no partiality. So, what were you and I carefully taught. And what is God trying hard to reveal to us face to face?